Hello, Curbsiders. We are hard at work making brand new episodes of the show. Today, we are rebooting one of our most popular episodes of all time. It's on hyponatremia with our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff, aka at kidney underscore boy. We have new show notes, we have infographics, and you can get free CME credit through our partner, VCU, at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. You know what? I just stepped out of what I know. If you guys were residents, I would just lie like a dog, right? And <laughs> you're going to put this on the internet and someone's going to be like, oh, that dork doesn't know what he's talking about. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. The Hello, in- Matt. <laughs> Hello, Stuart. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Uh, I- I'm at my mom's house, not not recording with you from the podcast for it, which is kind of sad. Mm. Yeah. No. I'm at my own house. Now I'm in my childhood podcast for it, I guess you could say, uh, at my mom's house. But uh, soon, hopefully, we'll be in a, in a grown-up house. Paul, are you also yeah. here? Yeah, no, that's that's sad in any number of ways. Really, just no matter how you slice it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Dr. Paul Williams. This is kind of a weird intro because I don't think I introduced what we do on the show, which no. is we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Mm-hmm. I actually like this new format of just starting with abusing you and then talking about the topic. I feel like <laughs> this is going to break out. I like it. It's more natural. The audience, <laughs> The audience will probably like it. Uh, I'm sorry that Dr. Toff missed this because I'm sure he would have liked this too. We we just finished uh, an extensive discussion on hyponatremia with Dr. Joel Toff. This is a topic that I find difficult as an educator, how to explain it to trainees and, and also, yeah, teach it to students and, and residents. And that's why we asked him on the show. If you haven't heard, our previous episode was, I believe, number 31. It was an episode where we talked about diuretics. Dr. Joel Toff was was our guest on that one. He is an, a medical educator best known as at kidney underscore boy on Twitter, at kidney boy. He is one of the creators of the Nephrology Journal Club and Neph Madness. He's also known for his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, Musings of a Salt Whisperer. He wrote a an excellent test book, textbook when he was still in medical school, I believe, and that is available for free. I will link to that in the show notes. It's a fantastic book. And Dr. Toff is a board-certified nephrologist. He's a partner at St. Clair Nephrology. He has academic appointments as assistant clinical professor at the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And for all the reasons I've mentioned we're so glad to have him back on the show, and hopefully we'll be having him on future shows as well. Here we're discussing hyponatremia. Sorry, I don't really have any salty uh, puns for today. All right. Well, I will. We'll still go back and do like the formal uh, formal intro, but I think we can just kind of fade into the discussion here, unless anybody has. Any like concerns, Paul? Do you need another refreshing beverage before we start? I would like to say my sweet hellos to Dr. Top. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to to talk to you last time, and I just I want to let you know the the book is just remarkable. I was actually sort of pre gaming today. It's just it's fantastic. So I just thank you, thank um, you. That was so I'm looking uh, forward to talking with you. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, that book is uh, it, it was it was weird being uh, 29 years old and feeling like I've done the best thing I'll ever do in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like I, all of a sudden I understood what like uh, high school football players felt like. I was like, okay, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. Peaks, this is Hanging it. up. <laughs> Time to develop a beer gut and get myself a car in my fifties. <laughs> Joe Stewart. Nice. Stewart actually wrote the. Uh, he kind of wrote the last episode, the qu- the questions and everything. And I did not have a chance to go through the book before the last episode, and this time I did. And I was like, this is a fantastic idea. It has pictures on every page and explains everything. You have the quiz questions, like from a from the stuff I've been leaning, reading and learning about just like education and retention of knowledge and stuff in general, all that is a great idea. So I'm not sure if you were aware of that at the time or if it just was like, I mean, but you know what we did, we just copied Dubin's EKG book, (laughs) right? Uh, Like we just took the best, we just took the best learning book that there was in medical school and say, well, you can do this for other topics. I don't know why nobody else has. Right. Right. So that's all we did. But we didn't quite realize what we were getting into. Like, I, I think Dubin's book is 180 pages and ours is <laughs> 500. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. It was a nightmare. <laughs> well, I could say, I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll certainly – I'm recommending it now to the to the listeners, and I think that was a pretty strong recommendation from Paul too. But I'll say That's it right. was – it made it pretty painless to read. I hadn't read about like – what a mole is and Avogadro's number and all that for a very long time. So that was, that was great. And I, I probably should, since we're going to use this as the intro uh, or at least some of this as the intro, I should introduce you to the audience. We're talking with Dr. Oh, Joel. Were we, intro, intro? we would have had an intro before this, but you know, yeah. Dr. Okay. Joel top, we are, we are talking with here, of course. And He's- Chief of Nephrology. He is the new new Chief of Nephrology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. He is the first chief uh, section chief that we've hired, and uh, he actually gave us the idea to elect people section chiefs. So it's it's out there. We're, we're we're looking to hire for cardiology, pulmonary, critical care, all that stuff. So we'll we'll, we'll take your applications, Joel. I did not get to ask you. I listened back tonight. I did not get to ask you this question. Let's say some of our audience hasn't heard of you and and hadn't heard you on the prior episode. Can you give us what would be your one liner if you had to describe yourself uh, the way we do on rounds? So I'm a 47 year old uh, Caucasian male, a typical nerd, uh, right back to Dungeons and Dragons as an adolescent. Uh, currently a uh, nephrologist, a public physician. And uh, a blogger, tweeter, and do a lot of uh, educational initiatives on the internet. Do you still do the uh, D and D? No, but my son does. I should get credit for that, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds like you raised him very well. Uh, what's the next question? I totally forgot. The next question is going to be. I think we were going to get into some picks of the week. Yeah, Doctor Top Joel. You're you're our guest, so I will let you do the honors. What what is your pick of the week for the audience? So my pick of the week are visual abstracts, and these things are starting to slip into journals, uh, especially in their tweet stream, on their Facebook presence, uh, and even on their websites. And if you think about what an abstract is in relationship to an article, so it's a brief summary of the article that gives you a sense of what's going to be what was done and what they found. And the visual abstract boils that down even further and conveys 
what was done and what was found into a single image, right? Because we live in a image obsessed culture where everything has to be digested with one frame. And uh, this is the solution for social for social sharing of scientific information today. It's called the visual abstract. And if you just go to Twitter and put in hashtag visual abstract, you'll see a ton of these. And they're really kind of compelling. They're very simple, but they give you a sense of what an article is about. You can see if it's perspective or retrospective. You can see what they were looking for and what they found. It's kind of like sharing uh, scientific knowledge for the ADHD age. A absolutely, right? And And you can say, oh, it really is terrible that we have such short attention spans. But that doesn't extend our attention span. Like we need to deal with the fact that yes, we have very short attention spans, <laughs> right? So how do you solve that, and, and or how do you still convey scientific information, right? Like right. we, it, you almost wonder if the short attention span is part of the reason we have this kind of giant anti-science movement in the public, right? Because science takes patience, and instead of trying to you know reverse you know, our short attention spans, maybe we need to adopt our science messaging for these short attention spans. And that's what this does. Mm. Don't get me started on essential oils. Uh, I, uh, I, yeah, but the visual abstracts thing sounds great. I somehow I've missed this. So I'm glad that's a good pick of the week. Yeah, I like it. Paul, did you have a pick of the week for us? An update on your movie quest? Uh, it's, it's that long string of mediocrity continues. Uh, it's, I, I have to embarrassingly admit I really enjoyed Moana, but I don't want to talk about that. I think the less Ooh. said, the better. Mm. That movie's um, great. I do have a pick of the week. I'm, are you ready to get your minds blown? So this Absolutely. is from a guy who loves Cormac McCarthy, whose favorite movie, Silence of the Lambs, um, and who recommended, I think, three metal bands last time. I'm going to recommend for you the cookbook, <laughs> Tartine, uh, by <laughs> Elizabeth M. Pruitt and Chad Robertson, um, which are recipes out of a famed, renowned San Francisco bakery. Um, it was actually given to me by a friend of the podcast, Aliyah Chisti. Uh, it is, uh, I don't know if either, I don't think we've ever discussed this because why would you? I don't know if you guys cook or bake, but it is incredibly fussy and sort of really French and these elaborate, complicated uh, recipes for things like croissants, which if you've never actually tried to make, it's just a two-day nightmare. But if you enjoy that kind of thing, it's just, it's a remarkably well-written. What's that? Nightmares? Nightmares or croissants or nightmares croissants. <laughs> But it's I, it's a it's a spectacular cookbook that's actually worth picking up if that's uh if that's something that you're into. I so. do eat, but uh, unfortunately <laughs> I don't have the attention span. So I like the visual, visual abstract ideas. So there are pictures of food if that helps you. But uh, it, yeah, it's it's tartine is the name of the cookbook. I don't think it helps me eat very much. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, okay, so I, I guess we'll, we'll go to my picks of the week. So I've got two books. Um, I've had the, the opportunity to kind of brush up on some of the books that I've had. Uh, that either I read in the past or haven't had the opportunity to read, one of which is a book that I started reading in medical school and didn't really have the opportunity to digest as much as I, as I really wanted to. It's called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, Understanding the Borderline Personality uh, by Gerald Creaseman and Hal Strauss. So um, it kind of just, just goes into the borderline personality psyche, how to diagnose it, how to deal with it, how to treat it, essentially. Not not necessarily for the... the uh, practitioner, but more for the layman. This is a book that I do recommend for a lot of my patients who are married to borderline spouses to just help to cope with it. 
Um, and the second one is intentional parenting. It, there's multiple authors on this one. The initial author, the first author is Sissy Goff, and there's a few other authors as well. And essentially, it, it just goes over, uh, it, it's it's a guide how to be a proactive parent instead of more of the um, passive parent. That's it. My, <laughs> my, Excellent. Good choice, so my, my, my choice will be, it's, it could be applied to parenting or teaching. Uh, I, I kind of thought of it in both contexts since that's how I spend most of my time. It's called Mindset, the New Psychology of Success by Carol Dweck. It's an older book. It's, it's from 2009. It's been talked about recently a lot and had been recommended by multiple people. And to boil it down, it basically talks about there's there's certain people who have a fixed mindset where they think that their abilities and their talents are are fixed and won't change and then there's people who have a growth mindset where they basically believe like there's no like if they work hard enough they can pretty much do whatever and they will continue to get better it's a very simple philosophy but i think that's kind of the genius of this book and they go through multiple examples of pro athletes that had a fixed mindset or a growth mindset and and actually talks about from a parenting or from a teaching perspective, you really don't want to label people and say, oh, you're so smart, even though you think it's a compliment. It, then the, when the person struggles with something, the idea is that people that are like, oh, I'm supposed to be smart. I don't get this. I'm stupid or I, I'm not smart enough to get this versus someone with, with a growth mindset would say, OK, this is hard for me. That's good. That means that I'm going to be learning something and they'll keep going with it. And I think it's a really great book. Uh, so if you're a teacher or even for yourself, I think it's a great book just to kind of ponder. And that's by Carol Dweck. So, Matt, can I ask you, just because I'm curious, like, so how do they suggest that you provide support? So if it's not a, a sort of praise-based system where then subsequent failures hurt even more, like how are you supposed to actually encourage right. learners and what they're describing? If, let's just say, uh, let's say one of my children does something great and you would you would always try to find something to praise. So I would say instead of saying, "Oh, you're so smart, you figured that out," I'd say, "You know, I'm I'm so happy you got that you you finished that job. You you really worked hard to figure it out, and even though it wasn't easy, you got through it." Like you kind of use that. So it it takes a little used to getting the wording. I'm still I'm still learning how to turn everything into that sort of praise. So rather than labeling the person, you're actually talking about what they actually accomplished. So it's a little bit more concrete. Am I yeah, saying you, that right? You kind it sounds of, like a little bit just being specific. You focus on the process. Yeah, you you kind of praise the effort. You praise the work, the process. You don't you don't label them smart, intelligent, dumb, clumsy, whatever. Because then th these people are all very impressionable, and they start to like think, oh, of course I fell because I'm clumsy. Even though you know they just need to work on their balance, and maybe they they would be better. Right. It's a good one. Okay. I do like that one. So which one of you does the 8-bit music? That's me. I do more than just 8-bit music. I do realistically anything I I don't know. I I, I just I, I like the chip tunes from the Nintendo Entertainment System, so I like turning those into songs. Has anybody's pick of the week been the Nintendo Click or a Switch? No, not yet, because we're waiting for them to pick us up as an advertiser so we can get free skins. <laughs> I, Stuart, well played. I, I, I've been meaning to, I've been meaning Stuart to praise you on the uh, the great effort you put into that eight bit song, and many people have, many guests have said that they really like that music and ask me who does it, and I tell them it's you. I don't know that I've said that on air yet, and that is. Stuart, any theme songs or intro or outro songs that have ever appeared in our show are all 
They are all composed by Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. It, there's actually a slight, slightly funny story that goes along with that because I, I do have a YouTube page that I don't really use very much, but I was I was playing around with putting advertisements on it, and apparently I I uh, voided the terms of contract or, or service with uh, YouTube, and they took away my ability to put ads on any of my pages anymore. <laughs> Joel, Joel, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Stuart was posting under the name Briggy Smalls, which I thought was a, a great name as well. Maybe not as good as Kidney Boy, but it was a good one. You can thank Doug Taylor for that one. <laughs> uh, why don't we start off tonight with a case, Doctor uh, Joel? I had I had put a case in this in this one here. This is a a real patient that I had seen with some of the demographic stuff changed. Uh, unless you wanted to substitute another case of yours, but I I had a case from Cashlack. Since you're the chief of nephrology there, you would have certainly been called on this patient. Let's go. Okay, this was a an 85 year old lady. I was seeing her in clinic. I, uh, she's always coming in. She's very anxious, always complaining of feeling fatigued. Her only real medical problem, she had some asthma. She's on a calcium channel blocker for her hypertension. She was on amlodipine. And she has hypothyroidism. We had checked her TSH like every time she comes in, cause it's, and it's always pretty normal. It's, it was three. She was on a, a low dose of Synthroid. And her sodium came back at 128. It had previously been normal. And she's, of course, saying that she's more fatigued than usual. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of, like, I know that you have been treating hyponatremia for a long time. Where do you start with a case like this? Right. So what we have is a, is a largely asymptomatic patient with just a laboratory finding of a low sodium. Is that right? That's pretty much it, yeah. Right. And, it, and, a, and a relatively... And a relatively mildly low sodium. And so, uh, you know, the, the first lesson that I always emphasize to uh, students is that we measure sodium because we care about tonicity and that generally they walk together, tonicity and sodium levels, but they don't always. And so there's this kind of group off to the side where they have a low sodium, but their serum tonicity or their serum osmolality is normal or high. And you want to separate those out right off the bat. And so you check the serum osmolality there. And if the serum osmolality is low, then our assumption is, is valid, right? That the low sodium did indicate a low osmolality and we can move on. We, I call that kind of true hyponatremia. And the, but there's two other possibilities. That osmolality could either be normal in the face of a low sodium or it could be high. And both of those I call false hyponatremia. Um, and they're kind of they're, each of them are different cases, and we can go through those. Uh, so the first would be a, a normal osmolality, and this is just a lab error. And uh, you know our our assays are not perfect. It's not a dire, it's not direct ion measurement, mm -hmm. and it can be thrown off by the technique of the of the measurement itself. And if there's a large amount of protein, like in a patient with Waldenstrom's or uh, multiple myeloma or a high level of uh, lipid, like in someone with hypertriglyceridemia, that lab will th show a falsely low serum sodium when the serum sodium is actually normal, and the osmolality is not affected by that. Uh, osmolality is measured by freezing point depression, not going to be affected by that. And so you will have a low serum sodium with a normal osmolality. You don't need to worry about that patient. They're fine. The other option is a high osmolality, and this is the elevated glucose. And you guys have all seen this, the hyperglycemic patient 
who gets um, who gets a low sodium. It's, it's very we see it all the time in DKA. Sure. How were you guys taught to deal with that? Well, in the in in DKA patient with an elevated glucose, you're going to be correcting the sodium and u- using the formula there, and and then usually it's going to work out that you have a normal serum sodium there. That's a great thing to do. Is as soon as you get that consult for hyponatremia, to adjust, take a look at the glucose and adjust the serum sodium for the glucose. And if that corrects your hyponatremia, you're kind of done. You recommend some insulin. You correct the hyperglycemia. You don't need to worry about any of the other complications. That patient doesn't have any of the implications of true hyponatremia because the problem with true hyponatremia is the low osmolality. And these patients actually have a high osmolality from the elevated glucose. Joel, I wanted to just break in and just quickly, uh, osmolality, when you're talking about osmolality, can you just review that? Yeah, that's great. That's great. The reason we care about hyponatremia is because it causes changes in tissue volume. That when you get uh, a very high sodium, sodium is an extracellular ion, that high osmolality outside the cells is going to draw water from the cellular compartment to the extracellular compartment. It's going to cause the cells to shrink, and that's going to damage tissues. Tissues don't like to have their volume changed. Likewise, if the uh, if the sodium gets very low, water is going to flow from the extracellular compartment into the intracellular compartment, so the osmolalities equalize, and that's going to cause the cells to swell, cause cellular edema, and they will all, and that'll also cause cellular dysfunction. So the key thing we want to see is we want to see that movement of water. That's what's going to cause all of our symptoms: the shift of water either into the cells with hyponatremia or out of the cells with hypernatremia or hyperosmolality. But you can imagine that th- some things that will contribute to osmolality don't cause um, a movement of water, right? Things that are ineffective osmol. So classic one is going to be urea. Urea is a small nonpolar molecule, and it'll easily diffuse into the cells. So you can get a very high serum osmol- uh, serum urea, urea of 100, 120, 200 even in profound renal failure. But that urea is going to be both inside the cells and outside the cells, so you're not going to get any movement of water. So it's not going to cause any of the osmotic side effects. All those are dependent on a change of an effective osmol. Uh, Glucose is an interesting one because it generally, in normal circumstances, is not an effective osmol, right? You've got plenty of insulin. You can move glucose into the cells very easily, and so it will not cause a net movement of water. But in situations where you get hyperglycemia, kind of by definition, you do not have adequate insulin. That's why you have the hyperglycemia. And then since there's no insulin, that glucose cannot move into the cells and it now is transformed into an effective osmol. And that's what we were just talking about with pseudo-hyponatremia, where you have the high osmolality. You have this very, very high glucose. There's not enough insulin for it to move into the water, into the cells. And so it's going to draw water from the cells to the extracellular compartment, cause that cell to shrink. And those patients actually behave and have symptoms much more similar to hypernatremia, movement of water from the cells out, than they do of hyponatremia, even though their serum sodiums will be low. Now, for the, for the other case, for this normal osmolality and the pseudohyponatremia, what, what should we think of there that, that is causing that? Right, so you want to try to find you want to try to find either the the source of the high proteins or the high, source of the high lipids. So you know, send off a, a lipid panel, 
You want to send off, one might want to do a serum a protein electrophoresis, make sure they don't have myeloma, make sure they don't have Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. I've seen this in patients that have gotten IVIG for, um, we're treating like a, a, a transplant rejection and we're using IVIG, they'll get the same kind of pseudoheponatremia. Oh, interesting. Okay, just give, you're given a bunch of immunoglobulins, a bunch of protein that's going to throw right. this, throw the measurement off. And and the so the lipids, the lipids and the extra protein, they're just not causing the same shifts of water as as an electrolyte would. Uh, that's a little bit. That's always been a little confusing to me. No, 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 no. no it's not physiology. It truly is in the mechanics of measuring it. Uh, right. That when they when they have to load this machine up, they actually have to account for this insoluble component, and they estimate it to be ten percent of volume. But in this situation, it's like twenty or thirty percent of volume, and so they end up over diluting the specimen. So to kind of recap what we've talked about so far, you get this initial sodium; it's low. Of course, we're going to repeat it. We're going to check if it's still low. We check the serum osmolality to make sure it's truly low because then that's going to take us down looking for what is this cause of this true hyponatremia with a low osmolality, which is generally a plasma osmolality less than 285. I, I imagine this differs per source. Yep. Yep. You're perfect. You got it. You nailed everything. That's exactly right. What you want to do is you want to make sure you don't spend a lot of time and energy working up the hyponatremia when it was just the hyperglycemia. Right. right? You, you, nothing makes you feel more foolish than that. Make sure you eliminate those easy pitfalls right off the bat by checking the serumosm. And if the serumosm is normal, then you should be thinking, well, maybe there's high lipids or high proteins. You okay. got it. Okay. So now... The, the big ticket item is the, the low osmolality hyponatremia. So you've confirmed. Where do, where do you take the workup from there? Perfect. Okay. So we call that true hyponatremia... And then the, what I like to do is I want to know, is ADH turned on or turned off? Do we have ADH-independent hyponatremia or do we have ADH-dependent hyponatremia? So I check the urine osmolality, okay? And you usually will already have this information because you have a urinalysis and you'll have a spec graph, the spec specific gravity, right? And if it's, um, if it's ADH-independent, then that'll be like 1010 or 1005. They'll either have super dilute urine or isosthenic urine. And these are these are all the cool diseases. These are like a tea and toast uh, syndrome or beer drinkers potomania or uh, psychogenic polydipsia. They, which I thought was an awesome name, but of course, because it was an awesome name, they changed it to primary polydipsia. Wow. They kept they kept the initials, but they took away the fact that we could call the patient psycho. <laughs> it's like there's just no fun anymore so okay so let's go let's go through um a psychogenic polydipsia super so actually let's even step back a little bit and let's just say if we have true hyponatremia like it it happens because you're drinking more water than you're peeing right end of story like just imagine like i always i when i give this lecture i have a, a balance and I say, hey, there's more water going in than there's going out. And whenever that happens, you're going to dilute the sodium in the body and you're going to get hyponatremia. And then I said, okay, well, how could you get more water going in than going out? And the first thing someone says is, well, what if you just drink a whole bunch? And I'm like, bingo, that could happen. <laughs> That's psychogenic polydipsia, right? Uh, 
if you just drink more than the kidneys are able to excrete, you will get hyponatremia because, you know, more going in than going out. And the, you know, the, the, the part that makes you hesitate is the kidneys can produce a lot of urine. They can produce 18 liters a day, right? So I want you to kind of visualize nine, two liters of Pepsi. That is, that just gets you to enough. You need to drink more than that to start to push the sodium down. My goodness. Yeah. So, uh, but the limit in an hour is only about a liter and a half. So you can imagine knocking off two liters in an hour and that, that would be enough to push your sodium down. And if you start pushing a lot more than that, and there was, there was a spat, a spate of these in the early two thousands of, um, fraternities doing hazing rituals where they would make people drink water, right? They didn't want to make them drink alcohol because that'd be dangerous. We'll just have them drink drink water. Sure. And and they they were killing these kids. They were, these kids were rolling into the ER seizing with cerebral edema from drinking too much water. Yeah. A couple of fatalities, a couple of fatalities. Yeah. There's, there was a couple in basic trainees as well that were reported. Same idea. They were being forced to basically down a couple of canteens of water, um, yeah, you could just go to PubMed and find a few cases right there. Yeah. yeah, right. And so when you think, you know, two liters in an hour, it's not that that's not an ex, a crazy amount, and that would be enough to drop the sodium. You need to go further than that to really push the sodium down. So that's psychogenic polydipsia. So then, how else could you get more water in than water out? And then some other joker always raises their hand. Well, what if you couldn't pee at all? Well, that's the that's the other reason, right? Anybody who's got acute renal failure or end stage renal disease, they're not making any urine. It doesn't take much water ingestion for them to have more water going in than going out, and they will also get hyponatremic. Right? You you go and you go to the dialysis floor at Cashlack, and you start taking a look at their serum sodiums, and their sodiums on the day before on the day of dialysis, right before they get dialysis, they're all trending down. They're 138, 134, right? Because anytime they drink water, they can't get rid of it. They're drinking more water than they're excreting. They're going to be slowly diluting that sodium until they get the dialysis. And then we we dialyze them against a high sodium bath and, and uh, bring their sodium up. So I'm guessing the last way it's going to be you're you're peeing out the solute, but you're just not replacing it. Yeah. So the last, the last one is you can kind of think a little, a little from both column A and column B, you're not mm-hmm. making enough urine, you're taking a little bit more water in and that, and that's the big punch, big, the big target there. But before we get there, there's one more ADHD independent that we need to talk about. This is the tea and toast and beer drinkers potomania. And, um, so you can, uh, you can imagine if you want to kind of, kind of think about the kidneys, you want to think about, well, you know, how much urine do they make? And, uh, and so if you don't have renal failure, all the solutes that you eat are excreted. And a normal American diet is um, 10 milliosms of solute per kilogram body weight. So think of 700, okay? And let's make the person a little bit smaller because the math will be easier. Let's have it a 60 kilogram person. Probably this, the probably that's how big your 85 year old woman was. In fact, yeah. since I was consulted on her, I remember that she was precisely 60 kilograms. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm surprised you almost and, forgot that. And uh, so so her normal osmolar load is going to be 600 milliosms a day. And you can think about normal kidneys. They can dilute urine down to 50 milliosms, or they can concentrate urine to about 1,200 milliosms. That's the kind of the range of a normal kidney. So if you take that 600 and you divide it by those two denominators, so the most urine she could possibly make would be 12 liters. 600 divided by 50 milliosms per kilogram comes out to 12 liters a year. Okay? And the 
minimum amount of urine would make will be 600 divided by a maximum concentration of 1200. And so that would be half a liter of urine. So that's the that's the, her range based on a normal diet of urine output that she could make. Does that make sense? It yeah. does. Yeah. Okay. So, and so in that situation, and we had, I talked about that most kidney, most kidneys can make 18 liters of urine in her case on a normal diet, she can only make 12 liters. So if she were to drink 13 liters, she would get progressively hyponatremic. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. But in a tea and toast disease, we're going to say, well, she's, uh, she only eats, you know, she doesn't have much money and she's be, eat, drinking tea and she's eating toast. And that's really most of her diet. She has some crackers and that's a purely carbohydrate and water diet. Now, carbohydrates are metabolized to CO2 and water. Well, CO2 is not a solute. You exhale that. And water is a solvent. That makes the situation worse. I mean, you know, we say, uh, uh, you know, a, a bowl of spaghetti from a nephrologist's perspective is the same thing as a, as a cup of water. <laughs> it's just metabolized to water and CO2. There's no solute there. And so what if instead of her diet being 600 milliosms a day, her diet is 100 milliosms a day because it's all carbs, very little protein in the diet, no salt in it. Well, now the maximum amount of urine she could make, even with the urine maximally diluted, is two liters. Mm. Well, in 24 hours, it's not hard to imagine her drinking three liters, maybe four liters. And all of a sudden, her she, she can't get rid of those four liters, right? She can get rid of two liters easily with at a urinosm of, of 50, but she can't get rid of the other two liters because if she got rid of the other two liters, she'd have to be able to drop her urinosm to 25. Mm -hmm which, you know, no human can do. She would right. need, like, you know, kind of alien technology to do that. <laughs> yeah, and so that's what happens in tea and toast disease. And beer drinkers, potomania is the same thing, right? They drink a lot of beer. Beer has no, is all carbohydrates. It's all metabolized to water and CO2 also. There's no, uh, there's no protein or electrolytes in, uh, in beer. So if, they, if you have an alcoholic who's getting all their calories just through alcohol, just through drinking – they're going to have a very low solute diet. You know, that's why, that's why most of the barkeeps, the barkeeps have taken advanced nephrology. They always put nuts on the bar, right? So they provide their patrons with some, some crystalloid and some protein <laughs> and they protect them from hyponatremia. Are you suggesting that most bartenders are amateur nephrologists? Yeah, of course. It's the kidneys. It's all about the kidneys, man. <laughs> I think they're I think they're balancing the osmolality. These guys, these guys, you know, they look they look like they're the, the characters from cocktail, but in reality, they're closet nerds. Yeah. <laughs> Have, do we feel that we've done the entire ADH independent limb of this? So you have a low yeah. urine osmolality. You check the urine osmolality, and it's low, right? I my little graph there shows less than two eighty five, which is probably a little generous. I would look. You know, mainly probably less than 200, you would be going down this 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 line thinking tea and toast in the little old lady, beer drinkers in the alcoholic, psychogenic polydipsia in the frat boy, and renal failure in the patient with a creatinine of eight. I think we feel good about them. So the other one is where all the trouble and hand-wringing happens. It's the big fat target. That's You check the urine osmolality, and it's 300, 400, 800. That's going to be the ADH-dependent hyponatremias. And this are, these are all the, all the hyponatremias that you think about and worry about. The heart failure patient, the cirrhotic patient, the SIADH, the volume-depleted patients. All of these patients, 
are have ADH at the root source of their hyponatremia. And again, remember what ADH does, right? ADH, you know, we call it the antidiuretic hormone. I hate I hate hormones that are named for what they don't do. The hormone <laughs> that makes you not pee. It's not helpful, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, so in our book, we called it the um, adds hydration to the body hormone. ADH adds hydration. And so, you know, any such any situation where the body's going to want to add hydration, you're going to have a lot of ADH. And so what it does is it takes that water from the urine and brings it back into the body. And so these patients will have very low urine outputs. And that's the key. So when you go back and you think about that balance, like how do you get a situation where you're drinking more than you're excreting? Well, ADH is going to reduce the amount that you're excreting pretty dramatically. It's going to lower those urine volumes a lot so that if you just drink a normal amount or slightly more than normal amount, you're going to have be in that imbalanced state with more water in than water out. Right. You know, so then you, go, then you want to say, well, where does ADH come from? So ADH's primary role is to lower the osmolality, right? So when you get a serum osmolality or a serum sodium of 160, you start cranking on that ADH to bring in additional water and dilute that sodium down. That's the number one reason that you have ADH. Another reason that we have ADH is, you know, it's, it's, remember its other name is vasopressin. It's a really potent vasopressor. So if you get hypotension, volume depletion, you'll also kick on the ADH and that's also going to uh, increase the ADH. And as a side effect, it's going to lower the urine output, which is probably an appropriate thing to do if you're volume depleted. Right. That makes sense. Where The way we measure volume, we don't actually have volume measures. We have... We've got physical exam, right? Well, I'm talking about the body. The body's detecting oh. detect pressure, right, and stretch, but it can't really measure the volume. And so mm. it can get fooled into thinking that you're hypovolemic when you actually have a perfusion failure, like heart mm. failure. Right. right. Like that's, you know, and so, you know, you have a patient that may look volume depleted and then they have another patient that looks like the Michelin man from their heart failure. They look nothing alike, but from the body and their kidneys perspective, they're identical situations. They both have a perfusion failure. And so they're cranking on the ADH, dropping that urine volume down, predisposing them to hyponatremia. And, and Joel, the point, the point you're making there basically is that, that when it comes to ADH, if if they're if the body is sensing low volume, that is going to trump even if the sodium is low. The low volume trumps everything, so it's going to be it wants vasopressin, it wants to raise the blood pressure, so that's going to inappropriately in the setting of something like a heart failure where it's just not sensing the volume, it's going to inappropriately have high ADH and and drive down that sodium. So what you're trying to say is that Trump is inappropriate. <laughs> You nailed that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Is that in the end, ADH is ruled by both volume and osmolality. But when it when push comes to shove, when volume and, and osmolality are in opposition, volume wins. Volume is more powerful, and it's going to be it's going to trump osmolality. So even in the face of a low osmolality, which should normally suppress ADH the low volume is going to take over. And that's super important. Those two, the fact that you're overruling that low osmolality, and we'll talk about that when we get to the treatment, because that becomes a huge issue. And so you have these two conditions, hypervolemic, heart failure and liver failure, and you have the hypovolemic, which could be, I don't know, GI losses, renal losses, other losses, any kind of thing that'll make you volume depleted, bleeding, I could suppose could do it. Anything that'll cause a release of ADH is going to predispose that patient 
to hyponatremia because you're going to decrease their urine volume. And then there's another category, which is um, which is the euvolemic patient. And so uh, this is a situation where ADH is being released, but for no physiologic benefit. It's just being released, you know, kind of in a crazy way. And we see this with, we call this SIADH, but we also see this with hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency. Mm. Joel, I wanted to break in here quickly and kind of tie this back to my patient and, and maybe take a, a moment to talk about the volume status exam. When I, I saw my patient, she had the high urine osmolality she did not have she did not have low osmo uh, low urine osmolality so we were kind of in this ADH thinking ADH dependent uh, hyponatremia and on her exam she really didn't seem to be volume overloaded she didn't have any any of the kind of stigmata of liver failure and I was I had checked some other uh, urine studies there was no signs that she was kind of in a nephrotic syndrome. So can you talk about how you like to assess, like the volume status exam is always really challenging for learners and, and even for, you know, attending physicians in certain cases. So what are the reliable tests if you're kind of looking for volume status? First of all, I think one of the best tests is the history, right? You just go through, like, have you been eating fine? Right? Have you been missing meals? Have you been, you know, out cold for a while? Have you been having diarrhea? Have you been having, you know, decreased PO intake? Like those are super helpful, I think. And um, and then the physical exam, I like orthostatics. Take a look at the neck veins. Look for peripheral edema. I mean, remember, you're trying to you you want to make sure, you know, is this heart failure or not? Right? Because heart failure is the one that you that it's devastating to give them saline. Right. Right. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to give a liter of saline to the person who's got a BMP at 10,000. What do you, what are your thoughts on examining mucous membranes or, or checking for axillary sweat, checking skin turgor? And if, if you check skin turgor, where do you check? I'm not a fan. Not a fan mm. of any yeah. of those. You know, so what, one of my, one of my favorite references is this, uh, it's a study from 1987 that, uh, that got, uh, you know, 40 or 50 patients with hyponatremia and they lined them up in front in a bunch of ex, in front of a bunch of experienced nephrologists some of the top nephrologists in the country and they said just tell us what you think the volume status is and the nephrologists were right 47% of the time <laughs> right they were slightly worse than a coin toss and a coin flip Right, like, and, uh, and that was enough for me to be like, "Oh my God!" I, th- and and right, this, and I love that the study was 1987. So all the attendings that you see today that say, "Oh, we used to be so good at doing physical exams," you can just show them <laughs> and say, "They didn't know it either." Right? right. <laughs> These things are subtle and they're difficult to figure out. Yeah. One of my favorite books is the evidence-based physical diagnosis book, and it goes over the the uh, it, clinical examination for volume status. And the only thing that has a positive likelihood ratio that's even st- approaches to st- statistical significance is the dry axilla. Beyond that, nothing else approaches statistical significance for positive likelihood ratio. And I think it also says you can check the the, the specific gravity, you know, if that's yes, yes. concentrated, then of course it, that's it, suggestive. It, 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 compa- it compared it to elevated serum, urea, nitrogen, creatinine ratio, osmolality, um and sodium level urine sodium so they use that as the determinator of what what the true volume status was and then the other one was just looking at postural symptoms so it shows a postural change greater than 30 beats per minute 
or severe postural dizziness had a specificity of 99% uh, and sensitivity of 98%. But that was for phlebotomy, where they <laughs> phlebotomized anywhere from 400 to 1.3 liters of blood, I think it was. No, 1.1 liters of blood. <laughs> I think they actually, if I'm not mistaken, said that if you see a tongue that looks moist that is without furrows, that argues a little bit away from hypovolemia. But I, I think that because the Rational Clinical Exam article on hypovolemia is also, I think, the first author, Steve McGee. And I think at the end of the day, they're like, you know, you can check this stuff, but probably check some labs while you're at it. You know what a longitudinal furrow of a tongue is. <laughs> but, I, but I'm going to write it down as soon as I see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting that Google image right now. <laughs> I'm doing it right too. <laughs> uh, I just love the image of all of us with tongues on our computers as we're talking. <laughs> I, I think, you know, they were trying to differentiate euvolemia from hypovolemia. And I think what you really want to do is you want to make sure you're not confusing the hypovolemic patient from the heart failure patient. And right. my sense is you guys... Any 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 internist worth their salt is not going to make that mistake. They're going to be able to differentiate heart failure from hypovolemia. Now, the but the more subtle one is going to be heart failure from euvolemia or hypovolemia from euvolemia. And I think this article says, hey, that's going to be difficult to do, and don't expect yourself to be perfect there. Experienced experienced nephrologists were right only forty seven percent of the time. So, so down to this patient. So this is this was the situation we were in with my patient. She had some shortness of breath symptoms. She wasn't examining like she was in heart failure. So we weren't sure if she maybe had some low-level heart failure. I ended up sending her for an echocardiogram, which came back with, you guessed it, grade one or grade two diastolic dysfunction. Ugh. And uh, and but otherwise, everything else looked pretty normal. And we ended up. Uh, we ended up checking another sodium. It eventually went down to, I think, 126, and she was feeling so bad that we ended up admitting her for this. But, but how would you, Joel, when you're, when you're kind of on the, on the fence here, what other tests can we get to kind of point towards a syndrome of inappropriate ADH? I like taking a look at the, the urine electrolytes and the serum uric acid. And so, um, right, so in heart failure and in volume depletion, that urine sodium is going to be low, right? Now, it's not going to be perfect, right? Because a lot, if they have a history of heart failure, they're, failure, they're likely on a diuretic. Right. And that's going to throw off your urine sodium, right? That'll elevate it falsely. And so you're really not seeing what the kidney wants to do. Um, and then the uric acid is nice because in... Uh, Cases of decreased perfusion, so both heart failure and volume depletion, that's going to get jacked up. And in SIADH, it gets suppressed and actually will go below normal. And you'll see other characteristics of that, of what's essentially an increased um, an increased uh, GFR cir uh, circumstance, is that in SIADH, they tend to get very low BUNs. So you'll see these kind of remarkably low BUNs and remarkably low creatinines and this low uric acid, and that's just that's just a perfect setup for uh, SIADH. And I, I had never been taught, Paul or Stuart, have you guys been using the uric acid? That's not something that I had been taught before or that I had done. So I, I was very intrigued when I kind of saw that as part of your algorithm. Yeah, I like I like that quite a bit. I will hmm. now like it. I have never used it before. <laughs> okay, good. And th at this point, this this lady ended up having SIADH 
And for for these patients, how do you like to approach the treatment? Or am I skipping another step here? But I, I do want to talk about the, the treatment of this patient. So I, I can tell you what she was treated with, which was she was treated with fluid restriction. And of course, she was given some salt tabs in the near term and actually ended up getting continued on them long term. I mean, this is kind of straightforward. If they have heart failure, you want to treat their heart failure. You're going to give them diuretics. You're going to try to get the patient compensated again. If they got liver failure, there's not a lot you can do about fixing the liver. You want to get them a transplant if possible. Um, and if they have hypovolemia, well, that one's pretty easy. You just got to replace their sodium losses and restore their volume status, and then they're going to be back in business. Um, with the SIADH, and if you – I don't know. Did you guys figure out why she had it? Did she have some pulmonary disease? We, you know, that's that's the next question is why is this happening? I see a lot of real transient SIADH, you know, maybe coming out of the OR. You know, a big stimuli mm-hmm. of uh, of ADH secretion is going to be um, positive pressure ventilation, asthma, pneumonia, pain, nausea, vomiting can do it. So a lot of those things may be transient. Yeah. And so they'll have this SIADH and their sodium will get low. And then a few days later, it'll kind of pass. And then you don't have to worry about chronic treatment. But there are patients with CNS disease or cancer uh, that they're going to they're going to have chronic uh, hyponatremia for a long period of time. I got a I got a patient with a um, a lesion in his brainstem that just keeps pumping out the SI the ADH, um, and we've been we've been managing there. And so there's a couple of ways to take a look at this. So one is you'll always, the first step is just fluid restriction. And if you can fluid restrict them and their sodium will go up, it's usually a relatively mild case of SIADH. And then you just need to keep their fluid restriction going and you can send them on their way. And what's going on here is the patients have a fixed, you remember when we were talking about with the TNTOS, I said, well, if they have a serum, a, 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 an osmolar load of 600, and then they have this, their ADH can vary from or their urine concentration can vary from 50 to 1,200. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And that, and how does it how does it vary from 50 to 1,200? Well, that's just the ADH going up and down, right? right. So we'll think of the SIADH. Their ADH is pegged so they can only make urine at 1,200. Mm-hmm. And so that patient's going to make 50 milliliter or 500 milliliters of urine every day because they got to get rid of 600 milliosms of solute. And their concentration of getting rid of that solute is always 1,200. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get their water intake to be right around that 500 or 500 plus insensible losses of another 400, you're in business. Your patient's going to be in water balance and their sodium will be fine. But, you know, it's hard to live by that kind of fluid restriction. So if you give them salt tablets, well, now that 600 milliosms that they have to excrete has gone up, right? Because if you give them a, a, a one gram of salt tablets twice a day, that's a that's an additional, um, I want to say, two hundred milliequivalents of solute. So now they instead of having six hundred, they have to get rid of. They have to get rid of eight hundred. Well, that's going to be that's going to allow them to make uh, at twelve hundred. That's going to make them they can make uh, seven hundred fifty cc's of urine, and so their fluid restriction got relaxed. Does that make sense to you guys? It it does, yeah. So the key 
the key thing you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the solute load, right? And I think it's deceptive You because the more intuitive way to think about it is they have a low sodium and I'm giving them sodium tablets. Just like if they had a low potassium, I'm giving them potassium tablets, right? But that's not what you're actually doing. You're just, it's anything that could increase the solute tablets. Have you guys heard of a product called urea? No, it's urea. And it literally, as disgusting as it sounds, is crystallized urea in a pill. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> right. The one is called Urina. Urina. Right? It's because it's designed for low sodium. The Na is for sodium. And this product, it's, uh, it just increases the solute load so they can relax their fluid restriction. It allows you to, if you can crank that 600 up to 1,000, well, now they can make two liters of urine a day. Oh, you can get lemon-lime flavored urina. Oh, that's right. Now, it's weird. It's not a drug. It's considered a medical food. Yeah. And so it usually will not be covered by insurance. And there are about a buck eighty-five for every 15 grams. Why does it have to be lemon-lime? That's so gross. Why lemon? Yeah, why would you drink lemon urina? None of this sounds good. That's oh, oh, bad marketing. This is golden. <laughs> golden is right. <laughs> so so I, I've had patients take this and they don't say the taste is that offensive. And there was a randomized trial of this versus Tolvaptan. You guys, you guys know, are you guys familiar with the Vaptans? Yeah, we, we actually had a uh, listener ask a question about that that we're going to get into a little bit later. Oh, awesome. Right, so the Vaptans, right, that's the best way to treat this drug, right? The problem is they have too much ADH. Well, don't we have an ADH antagonist? Yes, we do. Uh, and that's, and that, that is, you know, that's the ideal way to treat it. You got a problem, you have an excess hormone. Well, we're just going to antagonize that hormone and it works and it works great. Uh, unfortunately it's about 250 bucks a pill. Yeah. And so it, it, is that why it's limited to one month of usage? Well, uh, uh, we can talk about that. So that's, uh, uh, let's get into the Vaptans a little bit. So <laughs> let's go back, let's go back to the cirrhotic patient. All right. But we said, what do you do when the cause of the hyponatremia is cirrhosis, right? There's no way you can, you can't like give them diuretics and recompensate their, their liver, right? Those patients just have, they're going to suffer with a failed liver and that causes the ascites and they have very, very low urine sodiums and they retain water and they're a mess. And one of the consequences is hyponatremia. And it's actually, it's a really, I'm pretty sure it's a major component of the MELD score. Like hyponatremia is one of the things that kills these liver patients. And I don't know if it, I don't know if it's, a, it's associative or causative, but uh, that's a bad prognostic sign when your cirrhotic patient is hyponatremic. That'll right. move them right up the liver, the liver transplant list. And so uh, one way you can treat those patients is you give them, uh, you, well, the problem is they have the decreased perfusion causing a release of ADH. And if you give them uh, an ADH antagonist, it's essentially it's a medically induced uh, diabetes insipidus. You suppress ADH and they start to pour out essentially electrolyte-free water and it raises their serum sodium pretty quickly. Joel, I did want to ask, who is on these? I've never, I've used a Tolvaptan in one patient. The patient was a, a patient, a cancer patient, and died, was had a very poor prognosis. We knew they were going to be on it short term. Is there anyone that's taking these things long term? And I know that the prohibitive uh, adverse effect or side effect is um, is hypotension, right? Uh, well, the one that's con you know, hypotension, we see some of that, uh, the, but the big concern has been this liver toxicity. That, that, uh, it's not a black box warning, but it is maybe it's a double bold warning. It's pretty significant. Um, 
And so this this didn't actually come up. The, the original phase three trials are called SALT-1 and SALT-2, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, done by a guy named Robert Schreier, kind of uh, one of the deans of SALT. Um, and uh, they did, they enrolled cirrhosis patients like crazy, and they didn't have any trouble with those patients. The drug worked great for bringing up the sodium pretty quickly. Um, but the drug also has uh, a role in slowing cyst growth in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Hmm. And so this, and so for that, they have to take the patient, they have to take the drug for years, right? It's a very, very slowly progressive disease. You know, the disease progresses over decades. And um, there's been two randomized controlled prospective studies that have both been positive. Only one of them has been published so far, but the one that was published is called uh, Tempo 3-4. And what they discovered in that trial was an previously unknown liver toxicity, and they had elevations of uh, transaminases and elevations of bilirubin. And then apparently, according to the hepatologist, this is something I didn't, I didn't realize, that drugs that just bump your transaminases actually have a pretty low risk of fulminant liver failure. But if they bump both the transaminases and the bilirubin, some patients are going to die from fulminant liver failure. That That is a very predictive of bad things to happen. Now, nobody, that didn't happen to anybody in the 12 Apten trials, but that pattern is very concerning. And that's what generated this warning on the, on the box. And in fact, they'll even tell you that you shouldn't use a drug in cirrhosis. But the, the cautionary tale is that the ADPKD experience vastly different than the hyponatremia experience. They were using 120, average dose was 120 milligrams a day. I mean, I use 15 to 30 milligrams a day in hyponatremia, and I use it for a few days just to raise their serum sodium, and then I try to maintain it with these other strategies. And so, uh, you know, I personally think that the the concern about cirrhosis in, uh, and liver failure in hyponatremia is pretty overblown. I, I have a patient who has, um, who has a seizure disorder and has to be on a number of... Um, anti-seizure medications that cause hyponatremia. And he's been admitted multiple times when his sodium drifts down from the drug-induced SIADH. And then um, and then once his sodium goes down, then he has a seizure, right? Because it lowers his seizure threshold. <laughs> it's a horrible, right? It's a horrible circumstance. I, I mean, I can't stop the anti-seizure medications. Right. right? And, uh, and the anti-seizure medicines, in fact, cause a complication that lowers his seizure threshold. And that's my only patient that I have on chronic tolvaptin therapy. And he's done great with that. Wow. But, you know, that's clearly an edge case, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not your typical case. That's your... Not your typical case. That's right. Right. That's the one that finds, your, finds its way into the nephrologist's office because everybody clearly has given up. I wanted to go back a little bit to the SIADH, and I probably glazed over this a little bit. When, when we were diagnosing my patient with, with SIADH, this 85-year-old lady, she, she had these tests... We we did. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about like ru, um, ruling out other causes. It, do you do you consider SIADH before you arrive at that diagnosis? Is that pretty much a diagnosis of exclusion when you're talking about hyponatremia? And what yeah. are some? There's probably some tests we hadn't talked about, um, and and some of those would be potentially imaging studies to kind of and once you're settled on SIADH to look for the cause. So can you talk a little bit about any other tests that you would have added to our workup that we've talked about so far? You got to check the cortisol. Right? Okay. You got to 
tired woman. I don't know what her blood pressure was. Make sure she doesn't not adrenally insufficient. Those patients can also present with either hypovolemic if it's primary adrenal insufficiency. If they truly have no cortisol being released because their adrenal gland has died um, and no aldosterone release, those patients have, will have a salt wasting nephropathy and they'll get hypovolemic and they'll. We've already talked about how hypovolemia leads to hyponatremia, right? They get release of ADH in that regards. If they have um, just a loss of cortisol production, they, the, it's, a, it's unusual. How it was taught to me was an unusually in the, um, in the pituitary gland is it's pumping out all this excess ACTH. Uh, there's co-secretion of ADH. And so in those patients, even though their aldosterone levels will be intact, their volume status is, is euvolemic, they will also get excess ADH and they'll also get hyponatremia. Um, and, and, re and the other thing to remember, remember in those patients, they also get the hyperkalemia. It's that hyponatremia, hyperkalemia pattern that you're looking for. They say, oh, I better check cortisol here. Mm -hmm. How aggressive are you about imaging these patients with SIADH to try to make sure, like, do you, are you getting, routinely getting imaging of the chest or the, or the head and um, the thorax? So what I do is most of the SIADH that I see is limited and transient. Mm-hmm. Now, but if but when I get a case that isn't transient that keeps going, I go investigate it, right? I go, well, let's where's this thing coming from, right? And, and you want to make sure you 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 know you're not on any of the drugs, right? The most common ones are going to be your SSRIs, some of your anti seizure medications, some of your uh, sulfonylureas, uh, your your opioid narcotics. All those can cause a release of ADH. And so you kind of you kind of just want to scrub the med list and make sure that they're not on any of those. And with this lady, uh, you, I just wanted to highlight it for the listeners. This because this confused me, and until we were talking with you, I, I had no idea. But this this lady did have this thing where she would kind of cycle through, like her sodium would be normal, and then something would happen. She did have asthma, and she also had a lot of chronic pain, and she would have like these life events, and then freak out, and everything started to go out of whack. It seemed so. I was seeing this kind of transient thing. I didn't know that was, and we had. We, she had actually ended up getting pretty extensive imaging, kind of just looking like, why did this keep happening? But we never found anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's your experience. That was my experience until I found something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't want to tell you not to do that. Cause you know, I, I have a, I have a, you know, I mean, you know, a little old lady, not so dissimilar to yours, but she was pretty symptomatic, right? Sodium was in the low one twenties. This is a woman who was living independently, handling her own checkbook, and all of a sudden, she was she couldn't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. She kind of went a little nuts, and then uh, we fixed her sodium. And she got better, and and her mental status returned. And and and, and you know what she had she had this profound embarrassment, right? The worst thing for her was to not be in control of her faculties, mm -hmm. right? Huh. Right. But you know, you know, whatever it happened, it happened. And then and you know, so then. Uh, during the workup, we ended up doing a CT scan, and she, sure enough, she had a Goomba in her lung, and she she went for uh, a pneumonectomy. She's doing fine now. You know, like I was like, to my in my <laughs> mind, I was like, eighty year old women don't go for pneumonectomies and do well, but right. except for except for this one, she did except great. This one. <laughs> now, now you mentioned this, so this is a I think a logical follow up. What is your threshold for hospital admission in these patients with hyponatremia? One thirty. 
that is not evidence-based. That is my personal comfort level. Okay. And I, and I sometimes consult on people and they'll say, can we send the patient home at 128? We really want to pay, send the patient home. And I think, you know, if they seem to be doing fine and it's sodium's coming up, I'm usually okay with that, but I like 130. And so for this lady, when I checked it in clinic, and I was trying a little bit of an outpatient workup, it would have been reasonable to have said, okay, your sodium's 128, this is new, I don't know where it's coming from, I'm going to admit you to the hospital, try to figure this out. It is, because I'll tell you what, I've had a lot of patients where I do that, because you know, usually there's a lag time of a day or two, and you get that sodium back, and it's 128, you bring them into the hospital, repeat the sodium, 122. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we brought you in. Right. You know, it's no longer an edge case. And so, yeah, I don't have any trouble with at least sending them to the ER for a repeat and then an admission if it's worse or the same. I did have a a different question. So let's say someone comes in, they're symptomatic and their sodium is 110. Now, this happened to one of the patients that I saw on the wards. I, I didn't see him when his sodium was 110. He actually went to outside hospital. Um, and he went in with a sodium, actually it was 106, and they pumped him full of fluids because they thought that he was symptomatic. Unfortunately, he was just drunk, and this is someone who lives off of a, uh, off of a diet of essentially, uh, I think it was like 24 beers per day, and he'd done this for a long period of time. It looks like his baseline sodium was about 120, like 120 to 125 at baseline. And so he came in drunk with a sodium of 106. They pumped him full of fluids. Literally 12 hours later, his sodium was 146. He gets readmitted to my hospital. About uh, two weeks later, his wife is saying that he's running around the house naked, completely disoriented, confused, um, just completely different individual. And we got an MRI on him, and he actually had central pontine demyelination. So you he, saw he had, one. Yeah, I, we saw one. I'm gonna. I'm actually in the process of writing this case up. I can send you the MRI images. It's very. It's there's li- literally a nugget in the ponds, and so. Um, it's the first time I've ever, ever seen a case like this. And so the I've concern that I have, the, the concern you, that I have is that at, at what point do you say, well, this is a symptomatic hyponatremia who needs to be given uh, hypertonic saline initially, or do you ever do that? Or do you, are you still going to slowly correct it? Yeah, no, I, they, everybody gets slowly corrected. Yeah, right. right. Like, I mean, I think the classic teaching has been simplified pretty dramatically. You can take a look at the um, uh, the European hyponatremia guidelines. They're excellent, and they're so much easier. And you know, the first question: Do the does the patient have severe symptoms? And remind me, how did he present to that outside hospital? He presented intoxicated. I mean, he was clearly intoxicated. And that, that those were essentially his presenting symptoms, and his wife was insistent that he was not drinking. His his uh, um, ethanol the the his his ethanol level I think was was like four hundred and twenty. I mean this is just insane. Um, but they the ethanol level didn't come back until after they had corrected his hyponatremia. Okay, so let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they thought it was severe symptoms. Right. Okay. So. The guidelines there are an immediate increase in fi- of five milliequivalents per liter, and then right. ten in the first uh, twenty-four hours. Right, and right. they blew through that. Absolutely, one hundred percent, and discharged. And that just right, right. So that's <laughs> that's a horrible story. I mean, that's that's 
uh, yeah, that's a horrible. Yeah, story. I'll I'll send you the images. It'll be you know it'll be a mantelpiece for you. But you've got to you've got to write these 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 every one of these central pontimalum lysis. There's just not that many that happened, and they got to be written up. And I want to add a hugely important part of that story. Let's let's talk a little bit about let's let's this let's do a deep dive on the CPM story. Hey, can we? Joel, can I request as part of that that we talk that we mix in what is what is the rate of correction that we should be shooting for for acute or chronic or symptomatic asymptomatic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So, okay, so what the story with central pontine myelinolysis is that that they have a low serum sodium and they their body has adjusted to that low serum sodium so that the intracellular osmolality that they've ejected intracellular solutes from the intracellular compartment to the extracellular compartment so that that initial, right, when you get initially hypovolemic or hyponatremic, you get a shift of fluid into the cells that causes cerebral edema, and then you compensate by ejecting solutes from the intracellular compartment out, and so that water flows out of that intracellular compartment, and you get back to normal uh, cerebral volume, and that makes it relatively asymptomatic. But at, you're asymptomatic at the expense of that decreased solute content intracellularly. So then when you rapidly restore the extracellular sodium concentration, you make the intracellular compartment relatively hypotonic fluid floods away from the intracellular compartment, causing a shrinking of the brain, which is the tissue of importance, and that uh, those neurons collapse, essentially the myelin collapses on the cells, primarily in the pons, and is a devastating neurologic complication. Yeah, I hope I never see it like Stuart has. Let's say two, th two questions here. Which fluid, let's say for this, which fluid should this patient that Stuart presented have, have received, if any, and what rate of correction, well, I guess you kind of already said it. You said five immediately and then 10 over the first day. Let's say the patient wasn't symptomatic. For non-symptomatic patients, what sort of rate of correction do you use? I use six a day. Six a day. Yeah. The guidelines say, the guidelines say half a mil equivalent per liter per hour. So that's 12 a day. But if I aim for six and I go a little too fast, I'm going to stay under the speed limit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Because, and, 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 and that's the whole key is that all of the danger in that situation, if they're compensated, all the danger is in the treatment. Keeping them low is fine. They're asymptomatic. Right. And there's not like some chronic, you know, unless they, you don't want them to walk around and fall, but they're going to be at increased risk of falling. There'll be increased risk of seizures. But if you, the main risk is too fast. So I go six a day. And then if they have um, the severe symptoms, it's five acutely and 10 in the first 24 hours, and then eight millimoles per day after that until the sodium reaches 130. And the kind of tying it back when we talked about this, let's say the history, because that's where you're placing most of your stock, if the history is suggestive of hypovolemia in a patient coming in with a, a sodium of 115 and we're going to be correcting them, D does the choice of your initial fluid really matter? We're not going to be giving this fluid too quickly. Is there a reason to choose lactated ringers over normal saline or plasma light if your institution has a billion dollars and is using that stuff? No, no. I mean, the, the answer to that is you shouldn't be using normal saline because if it's SIADH, the normal saline is going to make it worse. Okay. So 
the fluid you want to use is 3% saline. And the big risk, if it's beer drinker's potomania or if it's a volume depletion, in both of those cases, or in a psychogenic polydipsia, in all of those situations, those patients are going to be absolutely prone to rapid rise in serum sodium. Right. Right. Like, th- you know, one way to think about it, if it's if it's um, beer drinkers potomania, so their urine osmolality is 50 milliosmoles per liter. It's as dilute as possible. You give them one liter of saline, that's 300 milliosms, they will generate six liters of urine from that one liter of fluid you gave them, right? Because you just gave them 300 milliosms at a dilution of 50 per liter, mm-hmm. that's six liters. Their sodium is going to skyrocket. And, and what happens in those patients, right? If not the one that comes in at 110 where everybody's paying attention, it's the person who comes in with 124 and... They get a liter of saline and their sodium goes up to 134. And what is the, the, most people look at that and they say, oh, you must have been volume depleted because I gave you volume and you got better, right? And what's their advice then? What's their advice as they walk out the ER? They said, make sure you stay well hydrated, (laughs) right? So you've just told the patient who's drinking too much water to drink more water. It's the worst possible advice, right? And you, all you needed to do is look at the, the specific gravity and seen that it was 10.05, not 10.30 or 10.20, and known that this patient wasn't volume depleted, must have been tea and toast or beer drinkers. Joel, I want to make sure I'm understanding this. Um, so for the, the hypothetical case I was giving you, a sodium of 115, you were saying 3% uh, saline, hypertonic saline. No, is what... I, I, think, I didn't get to finish my story. Okay. Let's, let's walk through that. So I said that, I said that there's a number of diagnoses there that could rapidly raise their sodium. Yeah. Right. If it's volume depletion, right, you give them a couple of liters of saline. As soon as you eliminate that volume depletion, then they no longer have that volume stimuli for ADH. Right. Then the hypothalamus says, okay, well, I don't have, no longer have to worry about volume. What's the osmolality? And the osmolality is like 220 and it freaks out and <laughs> shuts off ADH completely. <laughs> right. Because and the patient goes into essentially DI and they start pouring out 500 cc's of pure water an hour. <laughs> and again, you're going to get right back to what we talked about. You're going to have a rapid rise in sodium. Wow. Okay. So the, so what I used to do is I said, put a Foley in, put the patient in the ICU, call me if the urine output goes over 100 an hour. And then I'd start some D5, maybe some DDAVP. What I'm doing now and I, and I, and is... I'm putting a what's called a DDAVP lock on these patients, and I'm giving them ADH. I'm putting them on therapeutic ADH, 0.2 IVQ12. Keep their ADH maximized, and essentially it takes the kidneys out of the picture. They're, the kidneys are going to make a minimal amount of urine, and then I can just adjust the sodium directly with a with a 3% saline drip. Okay. Hey, I, just for nomenclature, is that the same thing as a DDAVP clamp? Yes. Okay. That's probably the right word. I probably met, mucked it up. What I call it? <laughs> you call it a lock. <laughs> yes, clamp is the word I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I wanted to make sure that I'm that I'm still following along here because I have never I have zero experience with a DD AVP clamp or lock or padlock, whatever you want to call it. Right. So you understand the idea is the the threat here is that the circumstances that got the patient in hyponatremia is going to change, and all of a sudden they are going to autocorrect on their own. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and that's going to be an uncontrolled situation, and we don't want that. So what we're going to do is we're going to step in, and we're just going to say, yeah, they may have a lot of ADH. They may have a lot of ADH because they have SIDH. If I give them more, that ain't going to make a difference. Or if they're volume depleted, I'm going to give them a lot of ADH, and that's going to keep them where they are right now in terms of their ADH level. So I get a predictable, I can make a, a set up a predictable rise in their serum sodium. Or if it's a beer drinkers or tea and toast or a primary polydipsia, they have no ADH around. And soon as you stop them from drinking water, their sodium is going to go up very fast. And in that situation, again, I'm going to just prevent that from happening. I'm going to put them on a bunch of ADH so that I can control that with the 3%. And I have not seen this done. I, most of the cases of hyponatremia that I'm seeing on, if I'm working on the hospital wards, I'm not in an ICU. They're mostly going to be sodiums in the mid 120s and higher. Usually, and I would never do that. I, I, I would never do this for that. Exactly. Okay. If for this is not civilian hyponatremia. This is this is this is like you're calling in seal time, seal team six for hyponatremia here. <laughs> So probably cases less than 120, is that sort of when you choose this kind of thing? I'm, I, I'm kind of a more, less than 115 kind of guy. When okay. This is where I start to really, really get nervous that I do not want to overshoot their correction. So for our, for our bread and butter internal medicine cases... Fluid restriction, give them a little moderate amount of, three, of uh, normal saline to make sure they're not volume depleted. Watch their response to normal saline, right? You give them a liter of normal saline, what are your possibilities? If it's hypervolemic because they have heart failure, you're going to make them sicker. That'll, they'll declare themselves. If they're hypovolemic, you give them normal saline, they're going to get better. And if they're uvolemic, like SIADH, you give them a liter of saline, that'll typically drop their serum sodium. You guys seen that? Give them, give them a liter of saline, their sodium gets worse? Yes. Yep. That, that usually freaks out the residents pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> right? If they didn't think they needed a nephrologist before that, they usually will be screaming for one after that. <laughs> and that but that's, that's a classic SIADH uh, syndrome. But for patients who are clearly volume depleted, we can we can give them the fluids and just check. And are you checking? How often are you checking? Generally, let's say someone's got a sodium of one twenty five, and you're starting to give them fluids for that. How often are you checking? Q four. Okay. That's that's pretty standard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that could be. I mean, it could be tough to do. So you should. Yeah, shoot for Q four. If you know your hospital's got like uh, is going to miss every other blood draw, then maybe do it at Q two. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that's when right. I was in residency and I was and I was rotating through um, a hospital that will remain unnamed. I actually had to draw some of my own labs at night. Save that. Save that story to tell the residents. Make sure you can humiliate them. When I was a resident, I used oh, to draw. It, my it wasn't own even. Blood. It, it wasn't even that long ago. That's what kills me. No, no, mm-hmm. the residents will look at you like you're a dinosaur as soon as you tell them that story. <laughs> no, they'll, they'll be hugely impressed. I would talk about it every day on round. They'll just blow more. They'll be impressed and resentful at the same time. It'll be very impressive. <laughs> well, I, I think most of my questions have been answered here, and uh, we've definitely talked for a long time. Stuart and Paul, do you have any sort of uh, other questions to, to tie this one up here? Man, I, I want to ask about the diuretic question that we had last time, but I think we're kind of running out of time. Are you going to do the dose of dialysis, the dose of diuretics that you had from last week? Yes. Right, right. So, so that, that's the question. So the question is, 
so once you induce a diuresis, does it does the dosing after that matter? So let, let's say if I induce a diuresis with 40 milligrams of Lasix, does it matter like if I give accidentally give 120 milligrams of Lasix, for example? Because you're going to you're going to eliminate it, right? So I, the fallacy in what you're saying is that you are oh. equating urine output with GFR, and that diuretics really don't affect GFR. But the GFR is going to be the same. It just reflects how much fluid is reabsorbed after filtration. Does that make sense? Okay, yes. And so I'm, I'm not convinced by your argument at all. I think that that higher dose, you're going to be exposing the nephron to more diuretic, and you're going to be having a greater effect on the loop, and you'll get more diuresis at higher doses and it will probably last longer because it kind of has a set half-life. And so, you, you know, as you go through those half-lives, you'll still be at effective doses for more half-lives at the higher dose. So oh, I don't, I was, I, I, I was hearing that and kind of having a seizure in my car as you were talking about <laughs> that. But I will say that I've not looked at any primary data. I've read a lot on diuretics and I've not come across that theory before. So I'm, I'm, I'm not on I'm not on your team there. This is a perfect question I think for your your Neff Journal Club or just you know the, that whole network. Uh so we should we should pose this on Twitter Stuart, and see what kind of answers we get from No, do that. Do that. Boys friends. So the tag that you want to use is called Ask Renal and we've got okay. a we've got a bot that retweets anything that gets tagged uh Ask Renal. It's okay. kind of like our our version of the of the uh of the uh, bat signal. Like when we see the Ask Renal <laughs> Everybody will, 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 it'll get multiplied and you should get some interesting answers. Okay. I would, we'll the see. way I would do it though, is I think it's a pretty complex question. I think you'll have a hard time getting it in 140 characters. So write it in like a, a note on your phone and take a screenshot and then post that. So you can have a little, bit ah, more, okay. a little bit more length with that. But I think it's a good question, but I don't think you're right. <laughs> oh, darn it. Oh, that made me so happy. Hopefully that's a soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> so just behind the scenes here, Joel, on, I was, I was leaving for a cross country road trip uh, to get, to get to my current, current location. And I was like, Stuart, the episode's ready to go, but do you want me to take this out? And he was like, uh, I, he's like, yeah, just take it out. And I was like, well, where'd you hear it from? And he's, he gave me a credible source. So I was like, let's just leave it in. We'll ask Joel about it next week. And so that's why we left it in. But we weren't we weren't a hundred percent sure it was true or not, and I think you could tell from the on air we were just like, "Are you sure this is so?" Dosing doesn't matter, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm I'm on team dosing still matters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Anything else, Paul, uh, that you had to add? No, no. I'm I'm glad you got in the the monitoring question. That was the big. That was the other one I had. So I I I think we cleaned up. The one thing that we didn't talk a little bit about uh, is that when we talked about um, increasing the salt content with SIADH by giving them the salt tablets, that it increases the salt. The other thing that we usually pair that with is a loop diuretic, and that loop diuretics are really effective in SIADH because if you think about the way ADH works, ADH triggers the uh, aquaporin channels to be put into the uh, medullary collecting duct which allows fluid from the collecting duct to be to go down its concentration gradient. And the reason there's a concentration gradient, there's the medullary interstitium in the kidney is really super concentrated. And that concentration is generated by the loop of Henle. Right. And so if you put people on a loop diuretic, 
you will short circuit that very con- that very high concentration. And so even though they have all this ADH, they just get less water reabsorption from it. And that, and so you, you're, you're actually, you're kind of altering the kidney to be essentially less responsive to ADH. You're inducing a little bit of a nephrogenic DI, if you will, um, diabetes insipidus, by just making that concentrated mediterranean interstitium less concentrated from the diuretic. I, I love the physiology behind that, but every every once in a while when I have to try to explain it to somebody, um, it just, you know, it, it makes my brain hurt. But I do, I, I think that's, that is a good thing. And, and the doses I've seen of, of uh, furosemide or Lasix for that have been quite low, like yeah. 10 or 20. Usually these are, these have been patients who weren't, who were, were naive to the drug and weren't volume overloaded. So they didn't yeah, and, big. And, and, and- that's exactly right, but and don't affect that. You don't expect the effect in a hospitalization that I that it just doesn't work that fast. You got to give it time to kind of wash out that medullary interstitium, and so uh, it's kind of an outpatient trick, and it works over weeks and months. And you can watch their urine osmolality go from twelve hundred to eight hundred to six hundred to four hundred, and as that osmolality goes down, you know that SIADH is becoming less intense. Excellent. Any, uh, well, why don't we get some take-home points for you? I mean, we've talked a lot here, so maybe you can give kind of a quick, a quick wrap-up of what you want the audience to remember from this episode. Okay, so one, I would highly recommend reading or taking a look at the clinical practice guidelines on the treatment of hyponatremia from, uh, it's the European Endocrinology Society. They're really well done, and they clearly decided that we need to make this simpler rather than more complex. And they have broken it down. They've clearly labeled what is what the symptoms to look for and how to manage it. There are almost no calculations anymore. You know, give them this much 3%. They're very easy to follow and they have a nice um, flow chart for you to use. I'm going to send you my version of the flow chart so you can put it in the show notes, but they're, they're really good. The next thing I'd like to say is uh, those patients that are asymptomatic hyponatremia that you're like, I'm not so worried about this patient because, yeah, I know the sodium is 126, but they're fine. I'm going to let them go home. Those patients have a very high risk of um, falls and fractures, and usually they're hip fractures. And we all know little old ladies with hip fractures have very high mortality rates. Like hyponatremia, it doesn't kill directly, but those hip fractures do. And so don't be so cavalier about the, quote, asymptomatic hyponatremia patient. Those patients fall and they have very thin bones or something about the hyponatremia where they actually uh, demineralize their bones over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, fluid restriction is always safe. doesn't always work, but it's always safe. It's a great way to go. And then carefully watch those sodiums and don't let them rise too quickly. All right. I feel better about this topic. I think I have a good framework of how to teach this too, which was a big motivation for for doing this episode because this is this can be a really tough topic to teach, but I think you've done a, a great job here and your algorithm here will be a big help to the audience too. Good, I hope so. I feel horrible. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nice to have something other than that 2000 New England Journal of Medicine article that I've been handing out for the past seven years. So I'm glad to have something else finally. And actually... Joel, before I lose you, I, I just have to, I just have to praise the fact that you referenced um, Doctor Strangelove on your blog. I just think that's the greatest thing ever. I, I I can't believe it wasn't brought up before. 
so, but the person's bodily fluids in the picture are just is spectacular. So that so that comes from the book. That's the there's a quote at the very beginning of the book where we talk about the the precious bodily fluids, and I just couldn't leave that, and it kind of continued on for a few years later and became part of the blog. It's it's perfect. I love it. Thank you. And Stuart, Stuart, you got to send that question out. Yeah, yeah, I I, I got it right here. What's the uh, hashtag? Is it hashtag Ask Renal? Ask Renal. Okay, it's done. Awesome. You'll get okay. a lot of good answers because I asked a question after last episode about something and I got uh, like 30 answers or something. Joel, we'll let you go. Yeah, excellent. Thanks a lot. You guys have All a right. good one. Take care. Uh, you the same. That was great. Thanks so much. Our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff. This has been another episode of The Curbsider. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we want your input, so please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. You sound tired, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Oh, hi. Hi, Paul. 